Church, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn in them to Genesis chapter 22. This chapter is known in Jewish tradition as the Akidah, which is Hebrew for the binding. It's where we see the binding of Isaac on the altar of sacrifice at the hands of his own father, Abraham. This is the final test of Abraham's faith. He's been tested many times as we've seen him. This is the final test of his life. Final test of his faith. And one of the final events of significance of his life. Everything that we've read about Abraham, beginning at the end of chapter 11, when God calls him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, everything comes to a climax in this passage. Everything leads to what happens on Mount Moriah. In many ways, this event in this passage, verses 1 through 14 of chapter 22, marks a a change in the focus of the book of Genesis. We've been in Genesis for many, many months now, and there's a shift here, because no longer is Abraham the focus. Now the, the focus shifts to his son Isaac and his children. And so let's read verses 1 through 14 of Genesis chapter 22. This is the word of God. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day... Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. 
He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you so much for this book. We thank you that what we hold in our hands is your very breath. And we return thanks to you for giving it to us and preserving it throughout the ages. And Lord, we thank you for this story culmination of of Abraham, the man of faith. We thank you for the story of this test of his faith and the provision of the Lamb. God, I just ask that, that you would use the lessons of this story to overwhelm us with your grace That the lessons of this story, God, would would prepare us in a holy way for the tests of faith that come into our lives. We ask, Father, that you would use your truth this morning to change us and transform us, to look more like your son, Jesus, so that you would be glorified through our lives so that people would look at us and, and not say what holy people they are, but what an amazing God they worship. Whatever change you need to do in our lives this morning, we pray that you would do it. We pray that your word would drive deep into our soul, bring conviction of sin, bring awareness of our desperate need for rescue and give us the hope of the gospel that we would treasure it and delight in it to our dying breath. We thank you for this book, Lord. We ask that you would bless the reading of it with your spirit's presence to bring us interpretation and application to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to use four movements in this narrative to help kind of map out the passage. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, is the command itself, the dreadful, awful command to offer up his son. Then in verses 3 through 4 is this journey to Mount Moriah. As we hear Moses describing the mundane things that Abraham goes through with the thought of offering his son on the altar when he gets there. In verses 7 through 10 is the offering itself on Mount Moriah and what transpires. And then in verses 11 through 14 is the substitute that God provides. So in these opening verses, in verses 1 and 2, we we hear God's command to Abraham to sacrifice his sons. But just a, a, a few notes that I want to to mention in these first two verses. First of all, Isaac, at this point he is, 
He's an adolescent of some age. We, we don't know exactly how old he is. We're simply told at the beginning of this chapter, after these things, and those are the things of chapter 21. And so if we presume that Isaac was two or three years old when he was weaned, and at that time Ishmael and, and his mother Hagar were exiled away from uh, Abraham and Sarah, this would be a handful of years later presumably. In the context of the story, Isaac is still young enough to where he doesn't catch on to what's happening in the story. He's clueless as to what's going on. He's young enough to where he's not able to put up much of a fight when his father binds him on the altar. But he's also old enough to carry the wood for the sacrifice. And so it's a guess as to his age, probably an adolescent, 10 to 12, perhaps even a young teenager at this point. But we're told after these things, God tested Abraham. God tested him. This is clear that this is a test from God. At no time was God going to allow Abraham to actually kill his son. It was a test of Abraham's faith. It was a test of his devotion. It was a test of his willingness to unwaveringly obey him, no matter what it took. Thirdly, we should note how God refers to Isaac when he speaks to Abraham about his son. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Part of what this tells us is that this is part of why Ishmael had to be exiled in chapter 21. So that now, when God requires him to sacrifice Isaac, the full brunt of that is felt. If Ishmael was still around, then perhaps Abraham could think, as he had at earlier times in his life, well, I've always got Ishmael. Perhaps the promise can come through him, but Ishmael's gone. He's been gone for a number of years now, exiled into the wilderness with his mother. He's beginning his own nation, as we learned. Now there's only Isaac, and if Isaac is gone, then it's going to be that much more difficult, impossible even, for God to fulfill his covenant promises through him. There's no backup plan without Ishmael in the story. But the way that God refers to Isaac, take your son, your only son, whom you love, tells us that God is aware of how hard this is going to be for Abraham. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. He knows that this is going to be the hardest thing he's ever asked of a man. He knows and is aware of the enormity of the task that he's giving to Abraham. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and then he gives them the command. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Offer him as a burnt offering. Your, son, your only son whom you love. God was telling Abraham to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice, to kill him for the Lord. 
There's, there's no confusion here as to what God was telling Abraham. It's as obvious to us as it was to Abraham. And this created a dilemma of obviously enormous proportions for Abraham. But it was a dilemma that was both on a personal level as well as a spiritual level. On a personal level, this was his son. Isaac was his boy. And he loved him. And Isaac loved him. After 25 years of waiting, God had provided him with a son through his wife, uh, Sarah. And they had built a special relationship together over the years. Apparently, this was not unusual for them to take long journeys together and to, to go away into the wilderness and, and, and offer up sacrifices to Yahweh. They had a close relationship. Abraham loved his son as any father would. And this command to sacrifice Isaac pitted God's command against Abraham's desire. Abraham, to put it lightly, didn't want to do this. He didn't want to do this with a passion. This is the last thing on the face of the earth he wanted to do. The very last thing. His desire was no different than any father's would be. He loved his son. He wanted to see his son grow up. He wanted to see his son mature in the faith. He wanted to see his son become a man. He wanted to see his son get married and have kids and bring grandchildren back to the home. But God said, offer him up as a burnt offering. Would Abraham do what God told him to do, or would he do what he wanted to do? And church, isn't that a dilemma that each of us faces every day? Will we do what God has clearly told us to do, or will we do what we want to do? This was a dilemma for him on a personal level, but it was also a dilemma on a spiritual level. For the first time in his life, not only are God's commands pitted against his desires, but God's commands are now pitted against God's promise. God had promised Abraham a son. And he had told him many years earlier, no, it's not Eliezer, the house servant. He's not going to be your heir. No, it's not Ishmael, the son of the the Egyptian slave Hagar. But it was Isaac. God had told him back in chapter 17 that he would establish his covenant with this son that would come through Sarah. And he said, his name will be called Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him. And he would, through him would come the blessing to all nations on the earth. In the previous chapter, chapter 21, God had made it clear when, when he told Abraham that, yeah, you're going to have to send Ishmael and Hagar away. He said, you're going to have to do that because through Isaac shall your offspring be named, he said. There was no question for Abraham that Isaac was the child of promise. He was the one through whom God's covenant promises would 
come. All of God's covenant promises that he's been reminding Abraham of since chapter 12, all of those covenant promises are on Isaac. And so if Isaac were sacrificed, then how could those promises be fulfilled? So for the first time in his experience with Yahweh, Abraham now experiences a conflict between God's clear and unambiguous command, offer up your son, and God's clear and unambiguous promise, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So how would this be resolved, Abraham, I'm sure, thought. There was only two options for Abraham to consider. One, either God was fickle, And he was prone to erratic changes in his plans and his promises. And this was just, uh, maybe this was just God changing his plans. God changing his promise. And now Isaac was no longer the child of promise. But for 25 years of walking with Yahweh and 25 years of tests of faith, those tests of faith for 25 years proved the exact opposite to Abraham. That God was not fickle, and God was not a God who changes. He was not changing himself or his plans or his promises. If anyone was fickle or prone to erratic changes, it was Abraham, not Yahweh. And so if God wasn't fickle, if God wasn't changing his promises here, it only left one option. The only way for Abraham to make sense out of this command to sacrifice Isaac was that somehow God was going to work things out so that both of those things could be fulfilled. And even though Abraham, being a a finite man, could not figure out how in the world those two things could possibly be true, He knew that he followed a God who was the creator of the universe and the sovereign over all who was able to do it. This was the greatest test of Abraham's life. There had been many tests in Abraham's life up to this point. God told him at the beginning of chapter 12, leave everything that you know, leave your father's household And go to a land that I will show you. A God he didn't know, telling him to go to a place he didn't know what what it was. And then when he got there, God told him to trust, trust him for provision in a land when there was no food there. There was a famine in the land. Would he trust God to provide or would he escape down to Egypt? Of course, he went down to Egypt. And down there he faced another test. Would he be honest with Pharaoh about his wife being his wife and not his sister? Later he faced the same test with Abimelech. Would he be honest with Abimelech about his wife being his wife and not his sister? Trusting God to fulfill his promise to bring him a son, though he was advanced in years, though his wife was advanced in years, though his wife was barren and couldn't have children, Would he trust that God would provide a son? 
Though he had many other opportunities to provide an heir, Eliezer, the house servant, Ishmael, the son through Hagar, would he trust God? All of these tests of faith led to this one. All of those were were quizzes, but this one, this is the final exam. So what does he do? The second section of the narrative, now they're on the journey to Mount Moriah. And we, and we feel on this journey, we sense the tension of this conflict rising in Abraham. Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Note that. He didn't waste any time here. He didn't, he didn't waver or delay in his obedience. He obeyed immediately. He rose early in the morning. But then look at how Moses describes this journey to Moriah. I find this interesting. He mentions all of these seemingly mundane things that he does to prepare for this journey and go on this journey. Look at the remainder of verses 3 and 4. He rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And as I'm reading this, I'm wondering, why, why does Moses include those details? Why didn't he just say, so they went to Moriah, to the place where God had told him to offer up Isaac? Why the cutting of the wood? Why the saddling of the donkey? Why, why this picture of Abraham going through these tasks over and over again? And I, I, don't, I don't know for sure, but for me, when I read this, I can't help but think about Abraham and what must have been going through his mind. As he put the saddle on the donkey, as he chopped the wood, the wood that he knew he would lay on his son. As he traveled those three days, Every chop of that wood, every step of that three-day journey was a test of faith in itself. Would he obey God even in this? Was he going to do for God what he considered unimaginable? The hardest thing possible. Was God going to change his mind at some point and stop him from chopping the wood, stop him from saddling the donkey, stop him from walking that three-day journey? Was he going to stop him at some point? Why would God ask this of me, he probably thought. Why, why, Why would he ask me to kill the child of promise? How will the promises be fulfilled now? He probably wondered. But on he walked, each step an agonizing step of faith, until at last he reached the foot of Mount Moriah. Now when he arrived there, I believe, based on the text, I believe that he had come to the point in his faith journey where he had figured out and come to the conclusion that somehow God was going to work things out. Somehow, Somehow Isaac was going to come back with him. 
And we see this because of what he said to the two young men who were traveling with him. Look at verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. There are three verbs in verse 5, and all three of them are plural. He, He doesn't say, we will go over there, and we will worship, and I will return here. He says, we will go over there, and we will worship, and we will return to you. And according to the writer of Hebrews, Abraham was thinking that after he killed his son Isaac, somehow, some way, God would bring him back to life. God would resurrect him. He was believing in a resurrection, though he had probably never seen or even heard of that. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, from the famous Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. This is what it says about Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Look at verse 19. He considered, Abraham considered, that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So the writer of Hebrews, remember, Hebrews is inspired as well. It's the word of God. So the writer of Hebrews says that what what Abraham was believing here was that God was able to bring his son back from the dead somehow, which he says, figuratively speaking, he did in fact do. Isaac was as good as dead. He was bound to the altar, and yet Abraham received him back. And so somehow he was confident that that he was going to go up to this mountain and he was going to offer his son obediently according to what God had told him to do. He was going to offer up his son, but somehow God would bring him back to life. Then they would both return down the mountain to meet up with these men. But you know, just because he believed that doesn't make it any easier for him to go through with what he had to go through. He still had to do it. It didn't make it any any easier for him, any more than it was easy for Jesus to go through with his crucifixion, though he knew that he would rise again victorious on the third day. Still, it was torture for him to go through with it, and so it was for Abraham. And so verse 6, now they're walking up the mountain, they're walking up the mountain to offer the sacrifice, Isaac thinks it's going to be a lamb. Abraham knows it's going to be his son. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. Can you imagine what was running through Abraham's mind as he laid this wood on his son's shoulders? As he took in one hand the embers for the fire with which to burn his son, and in the other, the knife with which to slay him. Each step up the mountain was a step of faith. And so they arrived, third movement in the narrative, the offering on Mount Moriah. 
Verse 7, Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? It's a great question, church. Where is the lamb for the offering? Where is God's provision for man's sin? Where is God's provision for our rebellion against him and the predicament that that has put us in? Where is God's provision for our sin? Where is the lamb for the offering? And then Abraham replies, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So what was going on in Abraham's heart here? What what was his belief in a possible resurrection waning at this point? And now he was thinking, well, maybe God's going to provide a lamb. Maybe God's going to provide a substitute. I don't think so. I think he was appeasing his son and keeping him calm for what came next. But in his words are prophetic significance. God will provide for himself a lamb. And we're told at the end of verse 8, so they went both of them together. Father and son, the son weighed down with the wood for his own sacrifice, reminding us of another son. And the father carrying in his own hands the instruments of that very sacrifice. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there. Just imagine him building that. Stacking those stones on which he would sacrifice his son. Laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. At this point you can just imagine Isaac, in utter astonishment, what's what's happening, Father? What are you doing? This isn't how it goes. I'm your son. You're, You're my father. Why? Why are you doing this? Tears of sadness, tears of grief, tears of horror, tears of utter panic. And those tears only matched by Abraham's own. This is his son, his only son, whom he loves. And his son is in utter panic and fear, all because of his own actions. No father can see that and not be utterly undone. can only imagine the agony of that moment. So even in this moment, even in this, the test of faith continues. Then verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now if this were a TV show, this would be where the TV producer cuts to a commercial. Right here. Maybe the end of a 
a, a, a season. This is the cliffhanger at the very end. Isaac bound on the altar. Abraham's hand raised with the knife. And at the very last moment, God intervenes with a substitute in this final section of the narrative. So the knife is coming down now. And then verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And for the third time, Abraham replies, here I am. And the angel says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. The ram was a miracle. God God either like transported him from another mountain to right there because he wasn't there before or, or it was an act of creation. He just, he created another ram right there in the thicket. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. There are, there are two profound lessons in this text that I want to make sure that we don't miss. And the first is that God will test your faith. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope, for rescue from what you deserve, God is going to test your faith. He tested Abraham's. It's clear that's what Moses tells us, that after these things, God tested Abraham. Now, God had been testing him all along, right? God God had been submitting Abraham to these tests of his faith all along, ever since chapter 12, ever since he said, leave the land of your fathers, go to a land that I will show you. He tested him in the famine, he tested him in Egypt with Pharaoh, he tested him with Ketalomer and the invading army, he tested him with the lure of riches from the king of Sodom, he tested him in the Negev with Abimelech. And he tested him with his old age and his wife's barrenness. All of these were tests of faith. Some of these tests he passed. Many of these tests he failed. But even in those failures, Abraham's faith was growing as a a result of that. Abraham's faith was maturing. His his trust in God, his, his knowledge of the kind of God that this was. This is a This is a God who doesn't change. This is a God who's who's faithful. This is a God who keeps his promises. He was learning about God. He was learning about himself. He was learning that God is one to be trusted, and I am not. His faith in God was growing during this time, while his faith in himself was shrinking. But all of it pointed to the ultimate test of his faith in this story. And the fruit of all these other faith quizzes is now being fleshed out 
as he passes the final exam with flying colors. God tests our faith as well. And the New Testament writers remind us of this fact. Let me give you three places where we're reminded of this, that God tests our faith and that there's a purpose for it. One is the, the first chapter of James' epistle. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is going to bring these tests of faith into your life. James calls them trials of various kinds. But these tests are not the end. They are the means to the end. The end here is steadfastness, our sanctification, our growing in Christ. He says the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let that steadfastness do its job, take its full effect. How is it going to take its full effect? Through the testing of faith. And its full effect is that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says this, In this you rejoice. In what? Well, he had been talking to them about how God had caused them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is undefiled, unfading, and imperishable ready to be revealed in the last time. This salvation of yours that's, that is future-oriented, this inheritance that is yours because of Christ. He says, in this you rejoice. Then he brings it back to current time. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, there's a purpose statement for us, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, though it perishes by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I was spending some time with Josie Baker, one of our members, this week. Josie is suffering from Hodgkin's lymphoma, cancer of the lymph system undergoing chemotherapy and all of the ravages that that does to the body. We were talking about 1 Peter chapter 1. And we were pointing to that inheritance that's coming, that's imperishable, unfading, and undefiled. But then we read the rest of the sentence. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. But then there's a purpose to them. So that the tested genuineness of your faith. Think about that. The tested genuineness of your faith. More precious than gold, though it perishes by fire, though it perishes through, though it's tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We talked about how gold is purified. Gold's purified by applying heat to it. And when it's heated, the impurities rise to the surface and they're scraped away. And then it's heated again and the impurities rise to the surface and are scraped away. And then it's heated again and the impurities rise to the surface and they're scraped away. And as God is perfecting our faith, as God is bringing purification to our faith, it requires heat. Heat in the form of various trials. Church, listen to me now if you're not in the midst of a time of suffering. That's not the time to hear this. Now's the time to hear it. Be convinced of this truth, church. That those times are perfecting your faith so that God would be glorified. That they may result in praise and glory at the, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ when Jesus comes to bring you home. Because your faith will be perfected through that heat. Peter will later say in that same letter, 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The New Testament testimony of faith-testing trials can be summarized in six, six words from those three passages. Number one, these faith-testing faith trials are numerous. They're numerous. It's, it, it, just as with, as with Abraham, it, it's not just one big test. It's a lifelong testing of your faith, a lifetime of them. Secondly, they are varied. They take many different shapes and sizes. There's no one size meets all. Whether it's cancer, whether it's a job loss, whether it's disappointment or failure or discouragement of some kind, there's no one kind of faith test. Thirdly, they should be expected. They're part of life in a fallen world. And so, as Peter says, we shouldn't be surprised at them as, something strange, as if something strange were happening to us. They are part of life in a fallen world. Our faith in this fallen world is imperfect. It is marred by the stain of sin in this world. And so if it is to be perfected, if it is to be purified, again, heat is required to bring it to that. Number four, they are difficult Peter says we're, we're grieved by them. They're fiery trials. He says that when we endure them, that we're sharing in Christ's sufferings. Those aren't fun things to endure. Grieving, fire, and suffering. So when God tests our faith, it's hard. It's difficult. But we can be encouraged to know that, fifthly, there's a reason for them. They are purposeful. He doesn't bring tests of faith into our life just to give us a grade on the test. His tests of our faith serve to mature our faith, perfect our faith, purify our faith. But even that is not the ultimate end. As Peter says, 
the ultimate end is that they may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The ultimate end is the worship of God. And because we know that God is thus using them for such a high and holy purpose, then we can be encouraged finally to know that they can lead us to joy. All three of those passages I just read, out of James 1 and 1 Peter 1 and 1 Peter 4, all of them talk about rejoicing when these trials come. And that kind of joy is not some kind of masochistic joy of pain and suffering. Instead, it is the joy of a confident assurance that a sovereign God is allowing the perfecting of your faith so that he will be glorified more in your life. And so how is God testing you right now? How is he testing your faith? What heat's being applied in your life right now? Is it a quiz? Or is it one of those final exam kind of tests? Do you know the tests of faith that your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church are experiencing? Do you know the tests of faith that your fellow base group members are undergoing right now? Consider the tests of faith. If you've walked with Jesus for a number of years, consider the tests of faith that he's been leading you through. And consider the lessons that you've learned about who God is and what he's like. That he is a promise keeper, that he never gives up on you, that he never quits on you, that he's always faithful. What faith lessons did those tests of faith afford you? And then consider that perhaps, perhaps those lessons are not just for you. Maybe they're for your brothers and sisters that are around you. Will you steward those faith lessons well and share them with others in the church? God will test our faith. And then secondly, the second lesson, I hope it's abundantly clear. The second lesson is simply an echo of Abraham's assurance to Isaac. God will provide for himself a lamb. God will provide for himself a provision for sin. God saved Isaac by providing a sacrificial lamb. And think for a moment, we're reading the book of Genesis in the year 2020, but consider the original audience for a moment. Consider the Israelites wandering in the Sinai Peninsula. When they hear the story of how God provided a ram in the thicket, how God provided a substitute lamb, would their thoughts not recall back to the lamb that God provided to each of the households of the Israelites while they were in slavery in Egypt? And how God said, slay that lamb as a substitute and then take the blood and paint your doorposts with it so that that final plague, the angel of death, would pass over each of the homes painted with the blood of the lamb. Later generations of Israelites would also read this account and they would think back to the sacrificial system that God had put in place where lambs would be sacrificed over and over again. First for many years in the tabernacle in the desert and then in the temple in Jerusalem. And in the fullness of time, God would provide another lamb 
He would provide his son, his one and only son, whom he loved, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a substitute for us, as a sacrifice for our sins. And what did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus coming to be baptized in the Jordan River? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Throughout the years, many have pointed to examples in Genesis 22 of typology. Some have pointed to Abraham as a type of Christ because he sacrificed much in obedience to God. But Abraham's faith was imperfect, and he wasn't the one being sacrificed. Others have pointed to Isaac and said he's a type of Christ. Because he was the one who was a substitute. He, and he carried the wood, just like Jesus. He carried the wood for his sacrifice. And he was laid upon the altar. But his was just a potential sacrifice. It was never actualized. Still others have pointed to the ram. The lamb in the thicket as a type of Christ. Because he was, in fact, a substitute sacrifice. Substituted for Isaac. But he was never resurrected from the dead. The reality is all of these sacrifices in this story and all of the sacrifices that are made in the Old Testament are just a shadow of the one that really counts. They're all pointing to the sacrifice of God's only son. And we're reminded of his love for his children when he provided his son his one and only son whom he loved and he did not withhold him from us and there was no last minute ram he stayed on the cross and he paid the price as god provided the ram in the thicket at just the right time so also he provided a substitute for us at just the right time he provided the ram so isaac could be saved and live And he provided Jesus so we could be saved and live forever with him. My question to you this morning is, have you placed your faith in this Jesus? Or are you trying to earn favor with this God? I I hope that it's clear from the testimony of Scripture. And I hope you hear loud and clear from the Holy Spirit this morning. That because of your sin, you deserve judgment. You deserve to spend eternity apart from God. But God has provided a lamb. He's made provision for the sins of mankind. Will you keep trusting in your efforts to try to be good enough? Or will you surrender and trust in Christ alone and what he accomplished on the cross as a substitute for you? Church, may we be eternally grateful for God's plan to provide a lamb for us. And may we be committed to taking this message of hope to a hopeless and dying world that so desperately needs it. Would you pray with me?